0: the bees are quite hidden away. So the first thing you know, about it, one will come down, as this one did, hovered in front of me, just <laughs> and stung me oh. on the head. And that was all right, but then, of course, it brings all its mates back. And within, I would say, within about 10 seconds, um, they were going up my nose, they were crawling in my oh. eyes, and I had them in my mouth, and they were in my ears, they'd gone through the air vents on my climbing helmet, they'd gone down my back.
1: You're thinking a bit differently about bees now, aren't you? (laughs) Yeah, be honest. It's time for another Tree Lady Talks. Our guest today has core skills that include, and I'm taking this straight off his website, blue-chip long-lens animal behaviour, aerial cable cam system, presenter-led sink and high-level technical rope access. Now, he's a lovely, lovely guy, and when we did this interview with James... It was really, really illuminating. But I have to say, he's in a very dangerous business. The squeamish amongst you might not want to listen further than, yes, the botflies, the pants that endured for many, many days, and the bees, which we've also um, got into and heard a clip of at the front of this. It's James Aldred in this episode of Tree Lady Talks.
2: So welcome to James Aldred, wildlife cameraman specialising in forests, and you're quite keen on climbing a tree. So hello, James.
0: (laughs) Hi there. Hi. Thanks for having me.
2: My pleasure. Well, it all started for me. um, My first trip outside of Europe in 2018, we were at the airport and Noel said, why don't we get this book? The Man Who Climbs Trees. And we were off to Bali, which um, was really exciting for me. And I devoured this book in a few days amongst a sort of tropical rainforest thinking, could that be me? But truth is, I am a tree expert, but I'm scared of heights. So, James, tell us a little bit about yourself, please.
0: Well, um, yeah, I always wanted to do wildlife photography and wildlife camera work. um, And I was always into climbing you know, as as a kid and as a teenager. And um, luckily I sort of, I grew up in the new forest and a lot of my mates um, went in to be tree surgeons and and foresters through what was then the the YTS, uh, the youth training team, you know. Um, And so by default, I I sort of picked it up. I was still, you know, doing my, um, what was I doing then? end of GCSEs and A-levels and all that sort of stuff so they'd left school a bit earlier than me and they were doing that but on the weekends, I had free time to go out and and play and they introduced me to ropes and harnesses back in the days when harnesses were made of leather and there were no leg loops and there was no kern mantle rope it was all twisted ply nylon and you know (laughs) frayed odds and ends Um, and just got the bug for it really um, started climbing trees with ropes um at the age of 15 16 and haven't stopped really i've, I've slowed down a lot but i haven't stopped
2: not wow yet. i mean you didn't start with anything that small did you tell us about goliath
0: <laughs> yeah so goliath is a really really special tree and um it's a it's a it's a a redwood um a, a giant redwood so um a sequoia dendron. And um, it, it grows in uh, a very interesting part of the New Forest, um, uh, a place called um, Rhinefield Ornamental Drive.
2: And You've been there. It's, quite, it, yes. it's amazing, isn't it? You feel like yeah. a, you know, like a tiny person with this huge cathedral-like landscape yeah. Yeah. around you.
0: It, it's a little slice of uh, Northern California. It's extraordinary. And, you know, especially in, in early spring, when the air is just full of that sort of citrony smell of, of sap from the Douglas firs and things. It, it, and you'd be forgetting it has that sort of very calming, silent atmosphere that a lot of, you know, old groves of conifers seem to exude. Um, it's a very, very special place. And i but I you know, been down there a few times as a kid, but I hadn't even noticed these trees to my um, shame. And then uh, uh, a friend of mine, Paddy, who was a, a tree surgeon, we'd, we'd stayed over at a friend of his house, who was a rock climber, and he said, right, we're going to climb a tree um, today. So I sort of jumped in and thought, oh, we're going to go and climb a beach or something. And then when we got to the base of the tree, bearing in mind I'd never worn a harness before or, or didn't even know what a carabiner was, and looking up at the first branch, which was, you know, 30 or 35 feet up, you know, as redwoods are, <laughs> Um and I thought, how, how on earth are we going to climb this thing? And and in 1990, I mean, there were no like big shot catapults or anything commercially available like that. And it was we we tried throwing a bundle of rope up, and we were rubbish. Um, so <laughs> Paddy's mate Matt <laughs> got out a pair of um, crampons and and ice axes. And I thought you're joking. And and he climbed up to the first branch using ice climbing mountaineering equipment and I thought well crikey I don't know about this you know stabbing into the tree but of course the bark is so thick I mean it's not something I would recommend and not something I've ever done myself but before too long I found myself on the first branch um but I got a bit freaked out and I only I only made it about halfway up the tree because of course trees especially trees that big move and you know and I didn't really have a head for heights, if
2: truth be oh, told. Oh, you didn't. So it wasn't <laughs> something that you were born with. I mean, no. by coincidence, I've been out surveying all day today, and I've been surveying <laughs> Sequoia dendrum giganteum myself, actually, in Hertfordshire, of yeah. all places. And and thinking about, and the tree was so large that my diameter tape ran out, and I had to use yeah. it twice to get the full girth of the tree. And I can I was believe it. Looking up and thinking, how on earth is your first big climb? So. So, how did you get over your fear mm-hmm. of heights? Was it sheer determination?
0: Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, something—I I got halfway up and and froze, and and was just sort of left hugging this giant stem, teetering on a on a dead branch. And, and Matt and Paddy ran up to the top, and they were having fun. And everything came back down about an hour later, picked me up, and we all absolutely down. And I thought, well, that, you know, that's probably not something I'm going to do again. But then on the weekend, Paddy said, Well, do you want to come out again? And and so it just got under the skin. And um, and I thought I, I took it on as a bit of a challenge. And I, I went away and started um, just on my own as, as you did in those days, with no, you know, thought to safety or anything really, just on a single point of attachment, and we just went out and climbed any tree I could to try and push that threshold higher of my comfort zone. And the, the lure, the thing that drew me on and on was because I was doing wildlife photography and I was uh, hugely into, you know, not just megafauna, but also insects and macro photography and things. Um just just seeing the life, that, um, the um the canopy of an oak or or a beach supported um made me realise that actually there's a whole world up here that no one is exploring, let alone photographing. Um, and there were a couple of articles in National Geographic, but these were very exotic places that people were going to, and and for me personally, you know, just to see a a, a sort of an oak you know, bush cricket, you know, just that high up and then just see it sort of jump off a leaf into the void and skydive with its antenna and legs. For me, that was at the age of 16 or 17, that was manna from heaven. I could almost believe I was in a rainforest and and it just got into me.
2: Fantastic. And you did go on to train as cameraman, didn't you?
0: So um, I I was doing a lot of local work, actually, as um, a camera assistant for um, several local uh, wildlife cameramen. And there's a chap called uh, Manuel Hinge, Manny Hinge, who still lives in in the New Forest, and he is an amazing cameraman. And I was lucky enough to camera assist him when I was a teenager and he'd let me have a go on the camera and all of that. And I'd learned how to use cameras without the responsibility of having to deliver, basically. And then um, I went on to film school and did the university thing. And then when I came out, I just started because I had the skill as a um, as a camera assistant, which, which basically just entails carrying other people's tripods, really, if I'm honest. You know. um, but coupled with being able to rig trees and get cameramen up into the, the canopy so that they could film, then the two skills went quite well, hand in hand. And then over the years, I started picking up more camera work and doing my own rigging to get myself into position. And then about 15 years ago, I took the leap to, to, to be a, a sort of full-time... Uh, cameraman specialising in that um, having, having learnt the ropes over quite a few years you know.
2: Fantastic, um, so tell us about your first big trip, where did you go?
0: Well the first one was, um, I, I had a mate who was um, uh, a, a producer in the BBC, in the Natural History Unit and he was working on the Attenborough series Life of Birds at the time um, an amazing man called Phil um, Hurrell and he invited me into the NHU, the Natural History Unit, quite a few times, and we had sandwiches, and <clears throat> back in the days when you could drink uh, a pint at lunchtime with, yeah. being, you know. Um, <laughs> it was quite nice, you know, to sit in the BBC canteen and just chat about birds and trees and things. But he had been freelance, but now he was in-house at the Beeb, so he couldn't take on any sort of um, um, e- external contract work. And someone asked him, um, being pretty much the only guy in Bristol, if not Britain, who was specialising in climbing big trees. I mean, Phil was a real pioneer on the TV front. And he kept getting people approaching him because he had been freelance saying, can you go out and do this? And he say, no, because I, I work for the BBC full time now. I can't do that. So he started putting work my way. And, and one day he phoned me up. I was on uh, set at, at Shepparton Studios in, in London on a big movie, and it was all going a bit pear shaped. And I was feeling a bit disillusioned with my aspirations to go to Hollywood, and I was feeling a bit peevish. And, and And the phone went, and uh, it was Phil saying, How do you want to get to Borneo? And so this was 1998. And um, yeah, um, he'd been approached. He couldn't do the job. So he put it on to me, and that led to six or seven weeks in uh, the Danham Valley conservation area in Sabah, in North Borneo, which is a 43,000 hectare um, area of pretty much pristine, primary, um, you know, sort of lowland bitricarp uh, forest. And that was just a a um, mind-bending experience. And it, it just really, really blew me away on so many different levels. I
2: bet it did, because had you been somewhere like that before? No. So... There was a climate. There was a culture. There was an incredible, fantastic, treescape. And let's talk about kit for a little bit. So, did what did how did you prepare for such a trip? And what did you take? Say, somebody lis- listening in Europe or North America now, listen to this podcast. What might they forget to take with them?
0: that's a very good question very good question and um it's not just about the climbing kit as well there are some other things a lot of other things which you, you wouldn't necessarily think be um important but of course working in the rainforest has its own challenges you know um just to, uh, in, in terms of what you pack just the side of <laughs> the climbing kit but I said to Phil that I'm, I'm you know I'm going to need to get a rope up to trees and this is before like the big catapults were commercially available and stuff. And, and he said, well, back up a sec. The first thing you've got to realise is you can't go around climbing with an old Willens leather harness with no leg loops anymore. You, you need to get savvy. So he suggested I did an industrial rope access climbing um, course. So I did my Errata level one in 97, I think that was. Um, and um, that was the technique that he advised that I used for climbing the big trees because you, you just can't use – you Know a lot of the trees there don't have branches for the first 110, 120 feet. And you just can't use ARB systems with friction hitches and prussic loops. Um, even with the, the 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 modern sort of you know variety of friction hitches and you know hitch master pulleys and all this sort of stuff, it, it's still a big ask in 35 degrees hundred percent humidity to sort of do that sort of um, thrusting body action all the way up to the first branch you'd just
2: be exhausted and dehydrated
0: it would just absolutely rinse you and however strong and fit you are and I was you know as fit as a butcher's dog then i not so much now of course but I, I was I was a I was a rabid climber back then but you know it was just too much um to do even consider doing it that way so he, he suggested I use what's essentially SRT, and you know, is derived from caving, mountaineering, and all sorts of uh, techniques, which is then transposed for for industrial climbing. So I I got onto the SRT system.
2: Could you just say, for benefit of listeners, including me, what's SRT, please?
0: A uh, single rope technique. So oh, okay. Have, a, have uh,
2: silly question. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, no. I mean, it's 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 not. It's um. You know, and, and there's a lot of different systems out there. And um, it's not to say that one is any better than the other. But the good thing about the SRT system, which I was using, the industrial, is that it has a, a sort of sternal point of attachment as your primary point when you're ascending. And the nice thing about that is that you don't have to waste your energy holding yourself upright if you want to have a breather halfway up. So it's a very ergonomic and comfortable way of climbing. And it's a very efficient way of climbing. And that sort of heat and humidity, it paid dividends. So you could take your time. You didn't rely on your own energy levels or momentum to just build inertia to get up there. But of course, the big problem is how do you get the rope up there in the first place? You you can't just throw it it up. Um, uh, So uh, Phil introduced me to the idea of using catapults. And I had an old Black Widow uh, catapult, just a little wrist rocket. And, of course, the limitation with those old small, you know, sort of hobby catapults is their power. They can only shoot very small projectiles. So I'd use ledger weights. um, From My cousin was a carp uh, into carp fishing, so he he gave me some of his little weights and um, uh, things from his fishing kit. Uh, And I tied that onto very, very thin... um, uh, line I suspended a, a poncho uh, at sort of uh, chest height with bungee cords uh, to four saplings and then I draped the cord over the poncho down and the loop back over the poncho down and the loop back over the poncho. It took about 20 minutes to set up but the good thing about that is when you actually shot it up with the catapult um, the, um, there was no uh, friction or resistance and the whole lot just leapt up in the air and with a small catapult and with a, a small weight, that was enough weight to overcome the weight of the line, pull it over the branch, and come down. But of course, you end up in a lot of tangles. You spend a lot of time untangling, you know, line in the in the forest. But of course, since then, there are there are a lot more uh, efficient techniques now. I mean, within the last fifteen to twenty years, it just amazes me the level of technology and thought and expertise which has gone into. Um, tree access and and climbing um, into the canopy, specialist catapults, specialist throw bags, you know, low friction line. None of that existed back then. So on the one hand, it was great fun trying to improvise. But on the other hand, um, it, it wasn't always the most efficient process it could have been.
2: <laughs> and what about, because um, you, you go up to the trees and you sleep in the tree as well, don't mm. you? And some of the really yeah. tall trees. So describe how you sleep in a tree it sounds utterly terrifying to me
0: (laughs) well the thing is the first thing is you 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 always stay in the harness and you always stay attached to the actual rope that you're on so you you become quite adept at sleeping on your back quite quickly because of course you've got carabiners coming in and stuff and 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 in a hammock um you don't really want to be rolling around anyway but i i find it actually um extremely enjoyable as long as the weather's playing ball it's the weather that's the big issue really because you're in in a very big emergent um tree if, if that's what you're sleeping in then you really are at the mercy you know that's that's the big um sort of um uh, selective uh, pressure on these big trees isn't it it's, it's, the weather, it's the weather it's the um the the lightning the you know the air displacement in front of a heavy downpour in the tropics is really quite shocking um, it blows the canopy around all over the place. And if that comes in at two or three in the morning, uh, you know, when you're so exhausted from the days climbing that you just completely sparko, it can be pretty disorientating. But I always sleep with my descender, um, my Absell device already loaded. So even if I'm half asleep, is will pitch out the side of the handle.
2: What a way to wake up. Oh, my goodness. I mean, let's just remember how how tall these trees are. I mean, what sort of height are you, are you talking about, the emergent trees in the tropical rainforest?
0: Well, it varies a lot, but in Borneo, where the tallest tropical trees undoubtedly are, um, there are, um, uh, like the the, the Mengaris tree, which is uh, Compassia excelsa, um, which is a, a type of legume, actually. That, that's up to about 80, 82, 85 metres tall. But um superseding that are some of the ditch cars. you know if they grow in the right place in a, in a gully where they have that microclimate and they can really race you know, against other trees that pushes them up by you you're talking up to about 90 meters um 92 meters and and so if you start taking the average um in in terms of i forget what it's called but there's a there's a type of it's a type of index that ecologists use to to measure the profile and the structure of a forest. I can't, I can't remember what it's called. Um, But what you do in any given forest, I'm led to believe, uh, or any given country is you take the the top five or six uh, tallest species of trees. You take the tallest known specimen of each, and then you take an average and that gives you that particular index. So obviously somewhere like California, and Oregon has an extremely tall uh, index, you know, because you, you're dealing obviously with the Douglas firs and, 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 the, um, and the, you know, the redwoods and the sicker spruces and hemlocks. And, things. and And so Britain would have a, a sort of middle of the road, middle of the range sort of index. really. But Borneo has um, an index right up there with Oregon, um, which is extraordinary because there are no conifers growing in those forests. These are all hardwoods. And when you think about the associated mass that a broadleaf um, canopy holds compared to a, a, a conifer, it just makes it all the more amazing that there, there are tropical forests like that where the trees aren't just as tall as almost as tall as redwoods and definitely as tall as Douglas firs and Sicker spruce but that they are also carrying these massive limbs, you know, and each branch is the size of a a European um, lime tree or an oak, you know, they're, they're phenomenal things, you know.
2: So when you're climbing the tree, you must go through a series of different ecosystems. Describe what it's like at the bottom. And as you go up, what do you see that um, what sort of privilege is it to see all these different insects and birds and mammals?
0: The understory at the base of the tree tends to be um, quite dark, musty, humid. Uh, it's dominated by the soil and, and the smells, uh, decay, uh, rot. Um, it, it sounds a bit sort of um, dark and ghoulish and, and gothic, but it's not, actually. You still get an overwhelmingly positive impression of life. It's just um, not as light tolerant. It just seems to be a bit more claustrophobic and locked in. Um, and then, as you start to move up on on uh, as, as you start to climb, you get to the understory. Um, you sort of climb through the shrub layer, and then you get to the understory, which is the, the 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 first layer of of lower canopy. That could be it. Could start at twenty feet and go on until one hundred and twenty feet. Or it could be pretty uh, uniform and you might not reach it until 60 or 70 feet up. But sooner or later, you you, you will sort of go into, having gone through an open space, uh, low down where it's dark and humid, you'll go into the understory, which can be a fascinating habitat in its own right. Very tangled, very convoluted, very intricate. A lot of lianas, um, a, a lot of vines, a lot of debris, a lot of dirt and, and dead branches, dead leaves, and um, compost, which has fallen from above and has been sort of ensnared in this floating layer. Um, and that's where a lot of the, the animals and the insects are found. It, it's quite a, um, a, a, a sort of um, friendly environment for them. There's a lot of food there, a lot of insects, a lot of foraging, a lot of primates hang out there. And then passing through there, is really your first glimpse certainly in Borneo of the upper levels into that cathedral space. You enter the bowl zone, which um, can be anything from 40 or 50 up to you know, 80 or 90 foot of nothing but tree stems. And you feel very exposed. You get the full force of the, the tropical sun. Humidity drops down hugely and you, you really start sweating. Um, and, it, and it tends to be as beautiful as it is. It, it's quite a harsh environment, and you sort of push on until you can get up higher, and then you start picking up the shadow of the branches above you on the trunk. You start entering that shade, and then you get up into the canopy of you know the the tree itself, and that can be um, a lot drier, um, more like a desert. So certainly, with a, a an emergent tree, a lot of the epiphytes which you might find in the understory, which tend to be quite lush. Um, and um you know there's a lot of moisture trapped into those little microclimates down there by the time you get into the higher canopy it really is more like a a a desert so you start noticing that like the epiphytes um have have sort of waxy cuticles on the leaves they're quite fleshy they're almost like um you know those money plants that that you get in the houses you know with the fleshy leaves and they're very much like almost like cacti really um and um, you, you tend to find quite a few orchids with pseudo bulbs, uh, which can actually, you know, store the water from the last rainfall and meet it out over the dry season. And then um, when you get really, really high up into the upper branches of the emergent, which is quite difficult to do, and I, I haven't managed to do that as often as I'd like, um, because the, the branches are obviously a lot more spindly and it depends a lot on the, the actual structure of the tree you're climbing as to whether it will tolerate your weight that high but if you do get up there and manage to stick your head out at the top um that's you know um you get the breeze and and everything but it is very very hot and exposed
2: gosh and the first time you did that did it change your view of nature and the world did it really enlighten you Did you feel different when you've climbed your first massive tree in the tropics?
0: Most absolutely, definitely, absolutely. I've got a lot of mates who are really into rock climbing, and mountaineering, and um, I'm I'm a rubbish rock climber. I don't have the strength to weight ratio for it. But in truth, I've never really tried because it's never captivated me because essentially at the end of the day, however amazing a rock climb is, you're still climbing a dead, inert, inanimate object. Well, hopefully inanimate. (laughs) Um, trees are totally different and part of the attraction for me has always been the fact that they are living entities um, and they are uh, responsive well very responsive to the environment just obviously on a different time scale to us Um, and that is a big factor for me so climbing a large tropical tree of that sort of size it has an energy of its own I personally believe and I feel and that and definitely uh, is a quite a, um, a humbling experience. And then I find that, you know, the sheer amount of life um, and diversity of life um, that a lot of these trees support is so utterly overwhelming. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to be immersed in that, it's like diving in on, a, on the most perfect coral reef you could ever imagine for the first time. To go up into a tree like that, where there's just so much life, is just a very, very humbling experience. And it makes you feel, it made me feel, extremely insignificant, but in a good way, not in a brow-beating, intimidating way. It made me feel like, actually, I'm just another animal, I'm another little clock in this infinitely exquisite Swiss watch of an ecosystem. And I'm just here and everything else is around me doing its thing. And, you know, it, it, it's just a very, very almost spiritual experience I, I've, I found. And, uh, and it, I'm quite sure. And it moved me hugely. Yeah, it absolutely did. It, re- it was a real eye opener uh, for me to see just how much life is suspended up in that sort of, um, well, floating kingdom.
2: Yeah. yeah, I love that phrase, floating kingdom. And in your book, you say, one tree, many worlds. And it's it's really captivating. And as much as all wildlife is good, you've had just sort of interesting moments up in the trees, haven't you? Some bees were quite friendly with you at one stage.
0: Yeah, honeybees and social insects are a real threat. They, well, they're not, they're not a threat. That sounds a bit all, you know, sort of...
2: They are a hazard.
0: They are a hazard, and they are a potential hazard that you ignore at your peril. Really, you, when they're foraging, they're absolutely fine. They're not. They're not a problem. You know, um, the, the, the rarest thing in the the rarest resource in the in in the forest and the rainforest. One of the rarest things is salt. And of course, when you're climbing, you're sweating constantly and the sweat isn't doing its job properly because you're wearing um, a shirt which is already soaked, humidity's high, so evaporation isn't happening, you're not cooling, so your body produces more and more sweat. And it's quite a dangerous feedback um, you have to be careful of, but essentially there's no avoiding the fact that you're going to be, like, ringing with sweat. And um, a lot of insects, particularly honeybees, um, like that salt, and they come in and they start treating you like a resource, so they'll just... Oh. And they they lick the, the the moisture that's wicking through your um, the, through your clothes. And that, it's a bit <laughs>
2: like um, my golden retriever licking my feet in the summer. Yeah, probably too much information.
0: No, that's that's exactly it. They they you know salt is you know I mean there's a reason why salt was a currency in places like Papua New Guinea and everything, and why people, coastal peoples. That's how they traded inland, and you know in various times, it's because they had this this thing that just made life worth living. You know, everything loves salt. It enhances in flavor, we need it. And, and of course insects need it uh, just as much. And, and so when they find a resource, uh, a sweating climber, <laughs> a sweaty Englishman, 200 feet the ground, they'll, they'll come in. And, and that's fine because they're not aggressive when they're foraging, but when you lean forward, invariably they'll climb down between the back of your harness and the small of your back, and then you lean back and you get zapped a couple of times. And that could be painful, but it doesn't elicit an attack. But um, I have had a couple of incidents, one in particular in, in Central Africa, in, in Gabon, in a national park called Loango, which is pretty much where the Congo rainforest comes down to the Atlantic. It's an extraordinary place. There are elephants, there are hippos in the surf, can you believe? There are elephants on the beach, you know, crocodiles um, actually in the forest, lying on game trails, waiting for pigs, you know, all it, it's that sort of real Tarzan type place. And I, I was climbing up there and um, doing a survey on a big hardwood um, in which we were hoping to build a, a treehouse for a film project. It was a beautiful big hardwood tree, gorgeous thing. And um, I was just so happy and excited to, to find the perfect tree for that treehouse. I just, in my own fault, I got too eager. I didn't survey it properly with binoculars beforehand. I went up and climbed into a, a hidden a uh, uh, beehive, and the thing about bees, of course, is they cavity nesters. They're not like a wasp nest or a hornet, which hangs down like a giant Christmas bauble, which you spot. The bees are quite hidden away, so the first you know about it, one will come down, as this one did, hovered in front of me, just <laughs> straight them, stung me on oh. the head, and that was all right. But then, of course, it brings all its mates back, and within, I would say, within about ten seconds. Um, they were going up my nose, they were crawling in my oh. eyes, and I had them in my mouth, and they were in my ears, they'd gone through the air vent on my climbing helmet, they'd gone down my back, and I had to do a changeover, and luckily I was above a lagoon, that the tree grew out over this, this um, inland lagoon, and I absolutely straight down um, into the water and went underwater, and some of the bees were even you know, stinging me underwater. I crawled to the camp, uh, to, to the bank, got myself up on, on the roots, very delirious um, left my just dropped my harness, left it hanging on the rope and and staggered up the path and um, felt very woozy was was throwing up and all of that and eventually crawled back to camp and I, I think I, I had between 60 and 70 uh, stings and these are these African honeybees are quite they're quite full-on you know they draw blood when they they really pack a punch. And, of course, the, the main thing that they're protecting from, of course, is they're gorillas and chimps who are incredibly tough primates. But being a, just a different sort of primate, a much softer primate, of course, they knew exactly where to attack because the vulnerable place of a, of a, of a, of a, not, of a chimp, of course, is the eyes and the mouth and nose. So that was deeply unpleasant. Um, and I've had a couple of incidents like that Um with, with various insects over the years and it, it happens so quickly and it's so shocking um, and, it, and it's really very, very scary indeed um,
2: I bet it is If you're feeling vulnerable or worried for your day you know She
1: interviews the best From Santa Fe to Dungeness From mental health to happiness, She
2: Lady talks to you today a really memorable part of the book for me was um, a nasty little rash you got in the Congo. Yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. That's quite the story. Yeah.
0: So the so I was in a, a national park called Odzala, um, and it still exists as a national park. Um, it's very, very big area of land, um, as most of the African national parks are. I mean, they make our, you know, Snowdonia or the New Forest or the Cape just look like, you know, like nothing and um, the size of these parks is bewildering and Odzala is very very remote and i was doing some camera system work there for a um a national geographic uh, stills photographer we were doing a um uh, an article called a series of articles called mega transect about a, a chap called mike faye who was uh transecting the whole of the congo doing a wildlife survey and um so this was 1999 and i was um i was uh, the, the the camera assistant for this stills photographer Nick Nichols, and Nick had gone up river and um, to to get some stuff, and I was feeling a bit rough, so he said, "Okay, well, you, you stay here in camp, catch me up when you can." um And um uh, I I was feeling a bit rough, started feeling even rougher. I was on my own in in a tent on the bank of this river in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the rainforest. It was just raining incessantly, and and I had these um. These sort of welts, they were like pimples, which um, covered my right leg, right across my midriff, up over my back, over my shoulder. They, they were everywhere, um, right across my crotch or my bum, just everywhere. It was deeply unpleasant. And they were getting bigger and bigger. And I thought, well, how, they, they, it must just be maybe it's thorns, maybe they're ticks, maybe it's just a little bit of uh, in, infected hair follicle or something. I mean, it's impossible to stay dry and clean out. And as time went on, they started getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Um and I remember one night I was I was trying to sleep and I just heard and felt this grating on on the bone in my skull. I thought, hang on, this is this is really not good. There's something in in the flesh on my skull that's basically eating the the uh, it's got mouth parts. I could feel it, it was gnawing. And I thought, that's it, it's got to be botfly, fly, these gotta be maggots. But I had no idea how to get rid of them. And I tried to lance one thinking on my thigh, thinking that I could draw it out. But it, it was naive and stupid. I, I just managed driving the big needle through the maggot, deeper into the flesh. My thigh went infected. It all turns nasty and um, were well, you still
2: on your own at this point, Yeah, James. totally
0: on my own. I was, I was about, oh. about a week in. I mean, Nick was just doing his thing. He was up river and, and you know, and um we had no comms, no communication at all.
2: Oh, um, I and mean, I bet you're thinking, why didn't I just stay in and, <laughs> and just uh, film something nice and safe and boring? Yeah, yeah exactly. Oh!
0: Like,
2: yeah, so, but, so um, carry on. Sorry, I love this story. Well,
0: I, I was sort of... You know, I, I I had a whole stack of antibiotics, <laughs> and, and this is a bit, you know, um, j- judge me if you will, but I also had a bottle of whiskey, and it was about the only oh. thing that was keeping my morale up at the time.
2: I, I think I'd judge you if you didn't. Quite <laughs> <make me.
0: laughs> so I was I was loaded up with antibiotics and uh, self-administering, uh, <laughs> you know, the occasional dram or three. And uh, and quietly losing the plot, just not knowing what was going on, and um, you know there's all sorts of weird diseases like Ebola and all sorts of crops around there. And until I actually realised it was a maggot, I, I didn't know what it was. So I was kind of going a bit loopy and And, and, mm-hmm. the plot. and one day I was standing out in my in my underpants in the hacking rain, just on the on the banks of the river, just staring at the, the rain coming down like a waterfall. And um, and a boat with um, anti poaching uh, patrol for the national park came past and there were a bunch of local lads all armed to the teeth with Kalashnikovs and and uh, pistols and all sorts and they're all in their in their camouflage um um you know uniforms and things. I remember just hailing them from the from the from the river bank and my schoolboy French is so bad and I just said, you know, I I need help. Send help. Can you help me? And they just looked at me like I like, like they. Huh. It was almost as though they were, you know, they didn't believe that, you know, any of their uh, their colleagues had even seen the same weird apparition, you know, some yeah. ghostly white pasty Englishman in his Marks and Spencer's pants standing on the yeah. the, the riverbank, you know, slightly drunk, obviously very very ill, trying to flag them down. So. Clearly, they were never going to stop. They just got out of there as quickly as possible, you know, looking quite worried. But to their credit, um, they must have um, sent someone up from um, camp headquarters, which is like two, a day and a half or two days that further down the river. And... Um, And about three days later, a Bayaka pygmy bush doctor walked out of the the trees.
2: Sorry, I'm going to stop you there. Did you say three days? Presumably the whisk is gone at this stage.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And
2: maybe the underpants aren't as clean.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: Three days.
0: Yeah, so they, yeah. Oh. And and I've been there in total for well over a week trying to sort it down. And this bush doctor just turned up. He couldn't speak any English, I couldn't speak any of of uh, And he had a, a little plastic um film canister full of palm oil. And he sat me down, I was in my underpants and that, and I just gave up the ghost. I was like, look, he's a complete stranger, and, and he's rubbing palm oil on these pimples on on my on my skin and stuff. And I thought this is a pretty random scenario. But he seemed to know what he was doing, so I let him get on with it. And he he just said, wait, wait. And he waited about five minutes. And quite a few of the pimples have developed air holes, and that's how the maggot breathes. And if you cover it with oil, which I didn't know at the time, but he clearly did, the maggot gets restless. um, Because the maggot's covered in uh, uh, tiny little spines that uh, means you can't get it out quickly. Um, But it gets restless because it doesn't have oxygen. So it starts to head up towards the hole. And at that point, you can squeeze it, like I said, and out the maggot comes. Quite painful. Um, and I had them everywhere, right across my midriff on, you know, <laughs> rather unfortunate places. So I, I squeezed those ones out myself. Oh. Knew. But yeah, it was quite, it was quite an ordeal. Um, but thankfully, there was no lasting, you know, sort of, you know, it wasn't a disease, basically, which was my main... Problem.
2: No, you were just fresh meat.
0: Fresh meat, exactly. And that's the other thing about rainforests, you know, very often... You know, you, you quite quickly you realise that um, it's that phrase, you know, uh, life is nature's way of keeping meat fresh. And you are yes. basically just a sack of protein to be um, raided. And I, I tracked it back to, because we, we'd been working in a camp where we couldn't light a fire, and so we couldn't dry any clothes. And that was because we didn't want the smoke to scare away the wildlife we were filming. So we had two sets of clothes, and Nick, the photographer, would walk in his wet clothes to the hives, then he would change into dry clothes. I was in a, a canopy hide, so I would walk in my wet clothes, change into my dry, climb up, sit in my dry all day, come down, change back into my wet, walk back, change back into my dry and sleep But I got caught out in a rainstorm uh, when I was up in the tree, so I had two sets of soaking clothes. And the issue with that is that um, these, these large bot fly, they're large black flies with red eyes, they come in and they actually lay eggs on wet clothing. Just as they do on the wet hide of, of um, primates and, and antelope and things, and that egg um, hatches into a microscopic um, maggot that goes in through one of the hair follicles and then gets bigger and bigger inside. So Nick never got it because he, he, in his moments of exposure, he was always in a dry set of clothes, but I was continuously wearing wet, you know, clothes, and that's why I got I got targeted. But yeah.
2: wow well done but i mean it's not all bad is it because you keep coming back and I, i think you've just come back from a trip haven't you james
0: i've just come back from a month in um in the congo again actually in central african republic uh filming forest elephants um out there so yeah i mean that that's a that's a challenge in itself i mean they're very very special animals um But very secretive and extremely difficult to find. You'd think that an elephant would be an easy thing to find in the forest but they really aren't um, despite a relatively high population and they're very aggressive and you know they're quite difficult to work around and obviously you're on foot but um, what we were hoping to do was to get behaviour of elephants feeding at a certain fruiting tree Um, and in order to do that to be safe you've got to be off the ground so that's where the tree climb comes in.
2: So oh, for the last see. month,
0: I uh, had a filming platform, but also had a rock climbing uh, portal ledge with a, with a, a rain uh, fly on it suspended. So I was there with um, a couple of other guys and I went up at midday each day on this rolling shift. I'd stay there for the afternoon, sleep all night in the tree, then get up before dawn back on the platform to man the cameras and go until the following midday and then um, Aidan and Ewan would come out very quietly because the place is crawling with elephants. They would then, um, I would come down silently, they would climb up, and they would do the next 24 hour shift.
1: Find out more about James at jamesaldred.com. You can also see the video version of this episode, which is well worth watching if you want to see me go off a cliff, on YouTube, SHA Sharon Hosegood
0: Associates.
2: So what would you say to anybody who's thinking of taking up tree climbing but is scared?
0: There's a a lot of machismo um, involved with any form of sort of uh, climbing and all of that. And um, it can be a bit of a turn off, especially if you feel like other people are watching you and you feel obliged to step out of your comfort zone. But I think that would be a mistake. You know, if you're nervous and you're scared about tree climbing, but you still feel like there's a world up there you want to explore. Um, just take it at your own pace. Just find someone who's willing to show you the techniques um, and, and then just explore and play. It doesn't matter if you're only 10 feet, 20 feet off the ground. It's just the sensation for me of hanging in the harness, being connected to this much larger, older, bigger um, life form. I, I, I find really quite compelling.
2: Well, um, I listened to um, a wonderful scheme in Japan called Tree Hab at the Abura Cultural Association conference, yeah. where um, young disabled people are taken up into the trees mm. with some arborists yeah. in harnesses, and they experience such joy and freedom because, particularly if somebody's in a wheelchair, yeah. to be able to experience being up in the canopy, yeah. it's been really transformative. But not only for the the participants, but also for those helping as well. I think there's something really um, in our DNA about climbing trees and being close to trees. It's part of us.
0: I couldn't agree more. I got It's, it's very interesting, you know, because when I, when I wrote that book, I sort of, I didn't know where to pin my colours in terms of talking about the more spiritual side of trees and our relationship with them. I, I actually used to do a few sort of kids climbing experiences and on one occasion, memorable occasion, we did take a disabled ladder and his face just came alive, it just lit up. Yeah. And there was something else going on. It wasn't just sight, sound, touch. and you know? There was just something else going on there which um, kind of defies description really.
2: And I think even since you've written this book, which... Um, it's about four or five years ago. I think the understanding of the spiritual connection between people and trees, and and where we, how we are all one, is really, really grown, and I really welcome people understanding that. It's mm-hmm. not. This was never going to be a conversation about what's the best kit, how fast you climb, what's the biggest tree. It's about that joyful feeling of connection and reverence. Yeah. For variety of nature. But Brilliant. It,
0: no, you're absolutely right. I mean, they are, you know, treats are the secret of um humanity's success.
2: Absolutely they are. I mean, without wishing to I almost harp on about a previous interview, but I interviewed Professor Roland Dennis at the beginning of this series about um how wood, the wood age a book is called, how it's shaped our evolution. Everything from even being able to sleep in the trees and make a nest, yeah. So our brains grew. Um,
0: absolutely agree. You know, opposable thumbs, forward facing eyes, you know, all of this sort of stuff. And it's very easy for people to say, Oh, well, we've lost all of that and we have to relearn it and we're, we're clumsy around in trees. Well, I might be pretty clumsy in that, but you watch, you know, some of the um you know, some of the the, the the competitions these days and the way people move, right? Okay, they've got ropes and all that, but I work with the, the most talented uh, tree climber I've ever met. It's a chap called Tom Greenwood in Australia, in, in Melbourne. And he was a, the Australian tree climbing champion uh, several times running, but he just had a fluidity, grace, strength and poise in those big tropical trees, which just beggars belief. He would, he would run out on a branch and take these massive leaps, like 40 feet, to another branch and just land and run in and he'd be taken in and slack and everything. And I remember watching him and thinking, it's still there. It's still in us. It, it just takes a bit of unlocking, you know? And I also strongly believe that... Um, We still associate heights with safety. You know, most of us have our bedrooms up on the first floor. It's not a coincidence, I think, that most of the large apes in rainforest locations sleep at exactly that height in the understory. You know, they sleep one story up in, you know, 10 to 15 feet off the ground. That's where they make their nests and that's where they feel safe. And okay, you know, we're we're not likely to to have to worry about leopards prowling around downstairs, you know. But, you know, we, we, you know, in the world we live in, you know, we're all conscious of of burglaries and things like that. And I think it taps in very deep into this association where we've always seen trees as a refuge and an escape. And certainly in a place like the Congo, where I've just been working, you get caught out on the ground at night time. And you might be all right, but there's a very, very good chance that you really aren't going to be okay because there's a lot of very, very big things moving around silently that you just don't see. And if they come across you, they're, they're going to kill you. You know, I mean, that's just, you know, you blunder into an elephant in the pitch dark and it is going to have you, a forest elephant. Um, so I still think that a lot of that stuff is in us and we've just transposed it and it's evolved and developed with us but you know kids love climbing trees as we all know and i think that's still part of our dna part of our makeup
2: i absolutely agree with you well james it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you
0: thank you very much indeed <laughs>
2: that was absolutely brilliant is there anything <laughs> else you would like to say no is there anything you want to add i have a question it's Noel's question of the week. Yeah, so, go we have a little chinko that goes, Noel's question of the <laughs> week. <laughs> yeah, don't it, don't it okay, okay. Noel's question of the week.
0: Is it better being in, behind the camera or up the tree? Well, both at the same time is, is the ideal. But I think up, the, up, up a tree, you know. And if I'm up a tree when, I'm, when I don't have a camera, it means that I'm climbing it for fun. And, and that's very hard to beat.
1: And that was...
0: Mel's Question of the
1: Week <laughs> oh, I got you under my skin <laughs> Oh, it's a bomb line! It's a bomb! Really, really awesome. <laughs> I tell you what, you've got to have a truckload of respect for the man who tried to lance a botfly. I mean just think about that for a second over your toast and sandwiches. Yes, mother, I had a very nice day at work today. I um, I popped up a tree, I um I, I fell asleep for a bit, I um lanced a bot fly. And <laughs> <laughs> You think you got a hard job, I tell you you haven't. You haven't. Yeah. James actually chooses to do this. I mean, Someone's got to. <laughs> oh, it's a funny thing. It's a funny thing, wildlife, bees, butterflies flies. And it may be that you remember Xander Johnson talking about flies and insects and everything that he does. Marvellous chap that he is. And, uh, yeah, Xander, <laughs> if you're listening to this, uh, yeah, give us a shout and we'll uh, we'll put you in touch with James. You can have a, um, a cross, a cross- party chat about uh, the various um, ways of getting rid of uh, insects that decide to get under your skin two reminders from me before you go if you've enjoyed this episode don't forget to share it with your friends and family and you can consider subscribing to the show to make sure you don't miss any episodes you can find us on our youtube channel which is SHA Sharon Hosgood Associates this video will be on that uh, you can get us on Instagram, which is at TreeLadyUK, and on the website TreeLadyTalks.co.uk. Thanks for listening.